15. Let me say a prayer for us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy you've given us this day. I pray that you would speak to us and you would show us your passion for the lost and the joy in them being found. I pray, Lord, that we would see the part that we play, that you give it, that you give us in your great story as well. Pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, earlier this summer, some of you were here with us. Uh, We were in our Drawing Near series, and in that series, Pastor Jeff, he preached on Luke 15. And he introduced us to this prominent theme of God's pursuit of his people. And we learned that seeing in the chapter as a whole that there are links between each parable. Uh, We saw that the the chapter consisted of three parables. There's the parable of the lost sheep, there's the parable of the lost coin, and there's the parable of the lost son. And these parables are all interrelated, and we see God's rejoicing over finding the lost one. This morning, we're going to focus all of our attention on that first parable, the parable of the lost sheep. And it is my hope and prayer that we discover a few prominent truths in this parable. The first, I hope that we get to see the stark contrast between Jesus and the Pharisees' approach to lost people. The second, I hope that we see Jesus' joy in seeking and finding the lost one. And third, I hope we see Jesus' joy in the celebration in heaven when that lost one is found. So as we begin, I think it's helpful to ask, why did Jesus speak in parables? Why did he speak in three parables, right, to this crowd? I think that's interesting. From the, we can see from the Old Testament all the way up to the Gospels, we see parables woven in and out of Scripture. But you see them the most office, oh, most often in the Gospels by Jesus. And I think it can be easily, easily argued that Jesus is a master storyteller. They were captivating. They were rich. They were relatable. They were real. He was able to take all the earthliness of everyday life and bring out new revelation. And I think it's a huge contrast between Jesus' parables and the parables of the other religious leaders in that New Testament era. Jesus wasn't necessarily making and creating this new form of teaching. What Jesus was doing was perfecting this form of teaching. And the Pharisees, they did find it helpful to use parables to teach people about God. They would teach doctrine primarily. They would teach the moral attitudes that one should have. They would teach applications. They would teach postures. And they would teach applications to God's law. But the Pharisees' parables were not Jesus' parables. They were super boring. Like, super boring. 
historians have actually preserved some of these parables. So let me read you one, and I think you can see pretty clearly the obvious difference between the two. This is a parable from a Pharisee. To what is it like? To a man who was traveling on the road when he encountered a wolf and escaped from it. And he went along relating the affair of the wolf. Then he encountered a lion and escaped from it and went along relating the affair of the lion. Then he encountered a snake and escaped from it, whereupon he forgot the two previous incidents and went along relating the affair of the snake. So with Israel, the latter troubles make them forget the earlier ones. Wow. (laughs) To say that is dry is an understatement. (laughs) Boring is my definition, but super unrelatable, right? Unrelatable, and actually, I think, honestly, a little confusing to me. Uh, I've read this multiple times, and I'm still not quite sure what I'm supposed to be getting out of it, but I think it's a good example here of the detachment and the separation from real life that the Pharisees had made for themselves, and it gives us a really good picture of this opening scene in chapter 15. Let's look at the beginning of our passage and see who Jesus was teaching these parables to. Verses one and two. All the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. And the Pharisees and scribes were complaining, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now Jesus was often seen in the company of tax collectors who were at that time, they were the extortionists, they were the traitors of their own people. He was often seen with the outcast who are deemed by the Pharisees as sinners. They were the lost. They were the defiled. They were the ones who had bad reputations. This group of people deemed sinners were rejected and they were separated from those who dealt with holy matters. And this separation caused them to make no attempt at living in accordance with the law and the cultural standards that the rabbis had set. Um, Yet they drew near to Jesus. Why? It's because Jesus came to them first. Jesus was in the practice of meeting people where they're at. He came to them as a friend in tenderness and compassion, seeing the soul to save them from the darkness that was around them. Imagine a picture of the tax collectors and the sinners are all on one side of the street, and then on the other, you have the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, they did want people to repent. They did want conversions. But here was the difference. The difference was the sinner had to do all of the work. The sinner was the one who had to cross the street. The lost had to find their way back. This is a distinctive characteristic. Well, actually, let me back up a little bit. Apart from the gospel, we have this general idea of God and world religions and spiritual myths that say that person must struggle must toil, must suffer to meet God. And actually, I think of an example from Greek mythology uh, about the story of Cupid and Psyche. 
Uh, for those of you who are unfamiliar, Psyche is in love with the god Cupid, right? And through a series of misfortunate events, um, her sisters, they give her this bad influence. All of a sudden, in a moment in time, she betrays Cupid. And the result of that betrayal is this casting out of in sending uh, Psyche to the wilderness where she is supposed to toil and live this terrible life based off of the actions that she had done. But she has a choice. In order to meet with God, she has to find her way back to him. But she has to go through these like impossible tasks. The first task that she has to do is she has to peel these, the chaff off of seeds um, with the help of ants. It's Greek mythology, so it's super weird, right? And then once she finishes this giant pile of seeds, then she has to go to the next thing where she has to walk up. Uh, no, wait. She has to climb through this big river. She gets up. Once she ends there, she has to climb up this giant mountain peak to catch a cup of water. Then from there, she has to go down into the underworld, burn and suffer to make her way back up to finally be in a place where she can see God while all the time the God Cupid is standing there watching her, aloof to all of her concern and suffering. And friends, this is the exact opposite of the gospel. The distinct characteristic of the gospel that sets itself apart is the truth that God became incarnate to seek us in our lostness. God came to us. Jesus, he didn't wait. He looked at people in the eyes and walked to them. And his attitude, it was joy. There was a smile on his face when he saw them. His demeanor was infectious. His love, it was pure. The outcast was proud to have Jesus as their friend. Have you ever known someone that's just so easy to talk to? It's like when they ask you how you're doing, it takes that breath of worry out of you, like that, oh, you will not believe this. This is how people felt when they talked to Jesus. He met them on their level. And when he did, walls broke down. Barriers of the soul crumbled. That's what real friendship does. But Jesus' friendship, it had another purpose. He welcomed them and he ate with them to rescue them from their sin. Jesus was the ray of sunshine that was shining and broke through their darkened hearts and drew them out into the light. You see, Jesus was doing what the Pharisees, they can never do. He was displaying a true holiness and showing them what God was really like. Jesus came from the other side of the street to bring a love that would cure lovelessness. And here we see Jesus, God incarnate, seeking the lost. And that's the very same love that the Pharisees rejected and opposed. So when he heard their criticism, he turned to them and he told everyone this parable. What man among you 
who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them does not leave the 99 in the open field and go after the lost one until he finds it. When he has found it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and coming home, he calls his friends and neighbors together saying to them, rejoice with me because I have found my lost sheep. The first words that we see here is Jesus has a rhetorical question, right? Which is actually a rebuke to the Pharisees' criticism of his actions in eating with the outcasts. He's addressing their mistaken judgment, and he's convicting them of their faults. See, Jesus' question was meant to turn their hearts to compassion and shine light on the absence of the grace, their lack of grace they had towards the lost. In this region, you would see sheep and shepherds all the time. It was very familiar to see a, a shepherd tending to his sheep. And in that same breath, that's how Jesus sets the scene for how a shepherd should treat his sheep. Should the sheep be ignored or neglected? Should the sheep be despised for losing their way? Was that the way a good shepherd dealt with his sheep? By asking the Pharisees a question about the shepherd, Jesus was putting them in the position of the shepherd. And now, this would start to make the Pharisees stir a little bit, right? Because of all the people there, who knew the most Old Testament references of shepherds? The Pharisees. The Pharisees would know what references Jesus was talking about. So what would come to their mind is Isaiah uh, chapter 40, verse 11. He protects his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them in the fold of his garment. He gently leads those that are nursing. Ezekiel 34, 15. I will tend my flock and let them lie down. This is the declaration of the Lord God. I will seek the lost. By asking the Pharisees this question, Jesus was saying, I'm the shepherd. He is the good shepherd. He is the shepherd who will find that one lost sheep. He was both rebuking the Pharisees and showing them that he is the Lord God who makes that declaration, I will seek the lost. In John, he describes himself as the good shepherd who willingly suffers and lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus says, John 10, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay my life down for the sheep. Imagine the ignited passion that the tax collectors and sinners and the outcasts had at that time. They were sitting next to the shepherd. But what they didn't see was where his passion for them would lead to. It would lead to his death. It would lead to to God's wrath being put on him. It would lead to suffering. Be sure that the shepherd in this story 
He is not skipping down a grassy field singing the sound of music. Now, this shepherd went to, who went to find the sheep would be suffering. It would be painful. But Jesus was not going to stop until that lost sheep was found. Now let's turn to the sheep. I think there's something very clear about Jesus comparing humans with sheep, right? First, I just think the most basic observation that I have is uh, our shared love for food, right? And it like, kind of isn't it interesting how much we talk about food? Like when we talk about it, we talk about what we're gonna, when we're gonna get it, what we're gonna do with it, how we're gonna cook it. And then when we're not eating it, we're gonna think about what we're gonna eat next, right? I hope that's not just me. There we go. <laughs> now, what we know about sheep, whether they're eating or they're doing something, is that they get super distracted and they get fixated on doing the same thing. So what a sheep will do is they'll kind of get in this tunnel vision and they'll keep doing the same thing over and over and over and they'll keep wandering off, staying in their head until eventually they get to a point where when they finally look up, they realize that they're away from all of the flock. They don't know what to do. And then this is most interesting of all, they just sit down. They don't do anything else. They are paralyzed in their, kind of their lostness and they just sit down. Uh, I have a, I remember, this reminds me of a story when we were in Guam, we were at this church party and uh, there's this big playground on the church campus and on the other side of the playground was this fence that led to this grassy hill. Then there's one more fence that led to this like 50 foot drop cliffside. It had a really awesome view, and it was really safe for kids. Um, <laughs> and I was with Gabe. Gabe was about two at that time. Anyway, so we're all playing. We're having this party. All the kids are playing and stuff. And then uh, there came a time when um, I was looking for Gabe because we were going to leave. So I called him, and I couldn't find him. And so I look over here. He's not there. I look over there. He's not there. At this point, parents give themselves approximately two seconds to not start losing it, right? <laughs> then I noticed something. I noticed that the little fence door had swung open. Now, parents, this is when your stomach drops and you realize that your kid is gone. So what did I do at that time? I swung the door open. I went down the grassy hillside. I looked across. The fence was too big, so I knew he'd be safe there. But I looked around. I'm finding. And then sure enough, at the far side of the other campus, there was little Gabe sitting down by himself, crying. He had lost his way. The little guy, he got confused and just kept doing his own thing. And then he got so lost that he just sat down and he waited for me to get him. And the relief I had when I saw him, I ran up to him, I scooped him up in my arms, and I brought him back and I said, don't tell your mom. We know that Jesus seeks the lost one until he finds it. 
Friends, in the same way, the tender heart of Christ is moved with compassion when he finds a lost soul paralyzed in sin. Let me say that again. The tender heart of Christ is moved with compassion when he finds a lost soul paralyzed in sin. He doesn't wince. He doesn't despise. No, he runs to that lost one. And he says, I'm so glad I found you. You're tired. Rest in my arms. This road's been hard on you. Let me carry you a while. The Son of Man has come to seek the lost. The sheep was lost and could do nothing on his own accord to find his way back. And how does this story come to a climax? With joy. Joy was in the shepherd who suffered to find the sheep. Joy was in the pain of his wounds and bruises. And there was joy in putting that lost sheep on his shoulders and to carry him all the way back. Notice the story does not end with the shepherd sitting down and the two sitting in the little grass side. No, the shepherd, he does something quite surprising. He takes the sheep, he puts it on his shoulders, and then he walks back all the way back into town. He walks farther than he had to because of his joy. He wanted to rejoice, not just with himself, but with others. He took the sheep into the town. And at this time, what the story tells us is we also want to think about the townspeople at this time, and they would be waiting with anticipation. Just like a, just like a movie, everybody's waiting there. They don't know if the shepherd's coming. What happens? Did he die? Was he attacked? Then all of a sudden, just like a movie scene out of the hillside, there's the shepherd, and there's the lost sheep. He found it. A celebration ensues, the people rejoice, and the shepherd calls to them, rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. What a beautiful image. Jesus shares his joy in rescuing the lost with us. And it's here that Jesus ends his story and moves into speaking a new revelation about himself in relation to heaven. Pulling people out of the story, he says, verse seven, I tell you, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who don't need repentance. Now, the 99 in this parable aren't emphasized quite like the other parables. The other parables speak a lot more specifically to the self-righteous people. But what is emphasized is the shared emotion of heaven, joy, Joy is what heaven shares with God when the lost are found. Here, Jesus is telling us that our earth 
is watched by an encompassing kingdom. And this heavenly host are watching with great anticipation for the lost to be found. An old theologian named John Knox uses his imagination when he considers this verse, and I love this quote here. I'm gonna read this to you. He says, angels bend from the sky to mark our every step. They follow with intense concern the wandering sheep and the pursuit and love by the shepherd. They say, that man is sorry for his failure. He feels pity. He's thinking now about Jesus, now. Now he lifts his head, he is found. Then all the bells of heaven break into joy. Jesus is that shepherd coming down the lane with the shepherd's crook shaped like a cross. He says, you are thirsty. Come drink at the springs of eternal life. When we are too weak through our folly to walk with him, he carries us on his shoulders. Let me read that last phrase again. When we are too weak through our folly to walk with him, he carries us on his shoulders. Christian, know the truth that there was earnest seeking, tenderness, joy, and a celebration in heaven when Jesus rescued you. Be encouraged in that. Jesus suffered and died in our place and rose again, and he carries us on his shoulders to the Father to bring us back home. Friend, do you know that there is a song the Father sings every time sinners like us are rescued? And this song is joined by all of the hosts in heaven. Here's some things I'd like to take away from this parable. The first is that Jesus welcomes the lost, and so should we. Church, there's a reason why Jesus would send the Holy Spirit at Pentecost to empower the church with his strength to seek the lost. The church is the hands and feet of Jesus on this earth who will walk the same path he did to find the lost. It's not easy. There will be suffering but it is eternally rewarding. We get to join Jesus, the good shepherd, in going after his lost sheep. We get to cross the other side of the street to bring the love that cures lovelessness. Through the Holy Spirit, our presence in this city and the world will break barriers and display the tender heart of Christ to the lost. The world should say about us, why are they going over there? It's because Jesus went there first, right? Jesus is the shepherd leading the way and we get to follow him. 
And this leads me to my second point, which is not only does the church get to follow Jesus in welcoming and seeking the lost, but we also get to rejoice with Christ and God the Father in heaven when salvation comes to the souls of lost people. How incredible. What a family to be in. Witnessing lives come to faith in Jesus refreshes and revitalizes the church and our souls. We are seriously selling ourselves short if we are missing out on this kind of rejoicing. Through our MCs, through our missional initiatives, through our global engagement, these are ways that we can welcome, seek, and rejoice in the lost being found. Friends, we can go with Christ in finding the lost sheep. Let's seek the lost with our good shepherd so we can rejoice with him and all of heaven. Let's pray.